0: visiting with us. I want to welcome you. My name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here uh, at Newbury Church. We're so thankful that you're visiting with us. We are in the in the midst of a series through the book of Nehemiah, a series that's entitled A Faith That Moves Forward. A Faith That that Moves Forward. Um, And this morning in Nehemiah chapter six, it's gonna be a little bit different uh, just in the sense of I'm not putting points up on the board. Uh, for you this morning. So bear with me. I try to be transparent and honest with you. The Holy Spirit's been working on me last night, this morning in particular. And so I think some of what I was planning on preaching is not what the Lord wants me to preach out of Nehemiah 6. And if you know me, you know I'm not, I'm not the guy that just like wings it. That's not me. I believe that the Spirit is probably more active in the preparation. I can't say more, active, but He's active in the preparation. Um, And so I normally come up with a full manuscript to preach out of that manuscript, Uh, but it's going to be a little different this morning. Hopefully you won't be able to tell that much uh, as the Word of God is taught. Uh, I'm going to tell, but I'm going to try to give you some points along the way. But we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 6 in its entirety, and I want to just invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word, and I'm going to read Nehemiah chapter 6 in its entirety And this is what, it's what Nehemiah writes. He says, when Sambalot, Tobiah, Jeshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at that time I had not installed the doors in the city gates, Sambalot and Jeshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. They were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. And Sambalot sent me the same message a fifth time by his aide who had an open letter in his hand and in it was written, it's reported among the nations and Jeshim agrees that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you are building the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king and have even set up the prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf. There is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king, so come, let's confer together. And then I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors. You are nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind, For they were all trying to intimidate us, saying they will drop their hands from work and it will never be finished. But now, my God, strengthen my hands. And I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who is restricted to his house. And he said, let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? How can someone like me enter the temple and live? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he spoke against me. Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He was hired so that I would be intimidated to do, as he suggested, sin and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sambalot for what they have done and also the prophetess Noadiah and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. The wall was completed in 52 days. And on the 25th day of the month Eloh, when all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and they lost their confidence. For they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. And during those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, since he was a son-in-law, to Shechaniah, son of Ara. And his son, Jehohanan, had married the daughter of Meshalom, son of Bericaiah. These nobles kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me, and they reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea a faith that is focused. A faith that is focused. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. God, I pray that you would give me the physical and spiritual strength, clarity, to preach your word the way that you intend to, to be taught, for your fame, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good. Okay. A faith that is focused. Now, there's an old, old fable. Uh, I remember reading, we had a bunch of those fable books growing up as kids. There's an old fable uh, about a tiger who was hungry. Uh, And so this tiger was looking for food and he caught the scent of a deer. And so he started tracking the deer. But as he's tracking the deer, he caught the scent of a, a rabbit. So he got diverted from the deer and started tracking the rabbit. And as he's tracking this rabbit, he catches the scent of a mouse And so he diverts from the rabbit and starts to track the mouse. And the fable ends by saying, the next day the tiger woke up even more hungry than he'd been the day before. And the purpose of that fable is simple. Teach kids a very simple lesson. Here it is. Stay focused. Stay focused. Because often we can be diverted by things of lesser significance and miss what's best right in front of us. Now, some of us, if we're honest this morning, okay, maybe you're here right now as I started talking, it immediately started happening to you. Focus can be a difficult thing. Some of us struggle with focus because we set our minds to do something and then we are quickly distracted by others. This is specifically true if you're a parent. Some of us struggle with focus because we want to do everything, we want to be everywhere, and we come to find out that omnipotence and omnipresence wasn't one of the gifts that God gave us. Some of us know the feeling of walking into a room and the thoughts in your head are running so fast that by the time you walk the 10 feet into the room, you forgot why you walked into the room. Anybody ever been there? Okay, I'm just making sure you're tracking with me here. It's it's easy to lose focus. And most of us know how unproductive we can feel when we start to lose focus. Now, in the day-in, day-out grind of our life, these little moments of losing focus, they can be frustrating, they can be irritating, but ultimately they're not that consequential. But sometimes losing focus has greater consequences. I, I remember one time a few years ago, I was riding in a car with some of my friends. I was living in South Carolina at the time. We were actually in North Carolina. We came to stop at a red light. There were four of us in a car. I was in the the front passenger seat. My friend Nate was driving. Two of our buddies were behind us. And I think Nate and I both realized simultaneously that the car across from us that should be stopping like we stopped wasn't stopping. And sure enough, it ran that red light and a car coming the other way hit it. And both of those cars came into the front of our car. by God's grace, no one was hurt. But I remember as we got out, everybody's talking, you okay? Everybody's making sure we're okay. The person who ran the red light was talking to the police officer. And I remember hearing him say, I looked down for at my radio for just one second and I lost focus. See, the loss of focus can have monumental ramifications. Here's why I tell you all this. I want to contend this morning that there, there may not be any area with greater consequences when it comes to losing focus than when we lose focus in our faith. A faith that loses focus is a faith that forgets its purpose. A faith that loses focus is a faith that honestly will accomplish very little for the kingdom of God. A faith that loses focus is a faith that will often fail to experience the full blessing of God. Paul understood this, which is why he says in Philippians 3, 13 through 14, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. Paul understood that in order to run this race well, we have to focus on the right thing and keep our eyes fixed on that. And this morning, what we see in Nehemiah 6 is... Nehemiah displaying to us a faith that is focused, that is committed to bringing God glory, that doesn't lose sight of the task even when all of these peripheral things are going on around him. So I'm going to try to draw some truths out of this text for us as we walk through it that highlight for us a faith that is focused. And, and so what I'm going to try to do specifically this morning is I want to try to point out to you two things to avoid. If you want a faith that's focused and two things that you have to do to cultivate a faith that's focused. So here we go. Here's the first truth that I want you to see. A faith that is focused is a faith that avoids the praise of men. A faith that is focused is a faith that avoids the praise of men. Look again at verses 1 through 4. It says, when Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it. Though at the time I had not installed the doors in the city gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me a message. Here's the message it says, Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. And they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing important work and I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal. And I gave the same reply. So here's where we are. Let me catch you up. Here's where we are in the story of Nehemiah. At this point, Nehemiah is six months out from when he first heard the news of the situation in Jerusalem. Remember, Nehemiah was in Susa, cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. His brother and some of his companions come to him. The first question he asks is, what's going on in Jerusalem? And they give the report. Jerusalem's in a bad way. The walls are torn down, everything's been burnt, it hasn't been rebuilt. Yeah, we got the temple back, but other than that, there is nothing. And and Nehemiah's heartbroken. And so he requests to leave. He asks the king for permission to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls of the city. And once he arrived, he surveyed all that needed to be done. Nehemiah and the people who had returned from exile, they began to build. And from the moment they started building until they finished took 52 days to rebuild all of the walls around Jerusalem. Now, what we can't forget is that all along the way, Nehemiah and the people of God faced fierce opposition. I mean, they dealt with mocking. They dealt with threats. They dealt with intimidation. There was even multiple instances of physical violence where they were attacked. But that wasn't all, remember? I mean, last week we talked about how even as the work was progressing and as the opposition from the external forces was starting to dwindle, there was injustice taking place within the city and Nehemiah had to deal with that. But here in chapter 6, finally, we come to the end of the rebuilding of the walls. And what I want you to notice is the only way that Nehemiah was able to to do all that god had tasked him to do while simultaneously dealing with all of the constant crises around him was that nehemiah never lost focus on the task that was before him and even as nehemiah comes to the end of the rebuilding stage of his assignment we see a faith that's focused and again we see it first in his avoidance of the praise of men So I'm going to show you where we see that. So in verses 1 and 2, it says, when Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, the rest of the enemies heard that they'd rebuilt the walls, they start sending messages to him. And the message says, come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. And we know from the text that the intention was to harm him. But here's where it gets interesting for us. This is actually a switch in tactics for the enemies of of God's people. Because Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem... The rest, and the rest of the enemies, they're, they're changing how they're coming after Nehemiah. Because up until this point, it's been direct threat, it's been direct conflict, it's been violence, all for the purpose of stopping the rebuilding of the wall. But they failed, and the wall was rebuilt. So they switch tactics, and rather than coming to him in direct opposition, they come to him with a sense of false recognition. In other words, what they're doing by inviting him to come and gather with them is they're appealing to his pride to try to lure Nehemiah in for harm. See, there was a, one commentator was helpful in explaining this. I, I read it this week. He was saying that, that they try to appeal to Nehemiah's sense of accomplishment, his pride and sense of reason, which essentially can be pride. And basically, what this commentator argues, their message is this, we recognize that we have openly ridiculed you and the work that you've been doing, but we're big enough to admit that we were wrong. You accomplished a great feat, and we have the utmost respect for you and your ability to assert yourself, to become uh, powerful and influential. And as like-minded men of renown, ourselves and fellow leaders of the people, let's get together. Let's have a summit. Let's talk this out where we can celebrate your success and converse about our mutual goals and the advancement of the region. And what they're doing here is brilliant. It's brilliant. Because watch this. After they failed to stop the work, they decided to focus on destroying the worker. And the way that they do that is by actually recognizing the work that he did by appealing to Nehemiah's pride in an attempt to trap him because they want him to fall. Because what they understand is that they can't stop the wall from going up, but they can still cause chaos if they can cause Nehemiah to fall. Because what Satan understands is you can undermine a good work, an actual good work, by simply causing the worker to fall. And you and I know it's true. Because some of us have had people in our life that we have admired, that we have looked up to, that have done amazing things for us, that have been blessings to us in our own life, and and there was good work present. And one monumental fall can undo all of that. I'm not saying it should happen like that. I'm just saying we know it's true. That good work can be undone when a person loses their way. And so they're trying to get Nehemiah to boast in the work that he has accomplished. They're trying to get him to give credit to himself and, in essence, undermine the entire reason that the work began in the first place. Because remember, the reason Nehemiah was committed to this work was because he was committed to bringing God glory by removing the embarrassment and disgrace of Israel because of what Jerusalem looked like. It was all for God's glory. God tasked Nehemiah with this assignment for the good of God's people, but mostly for the glory of God's name. And if Nehemiah starts giving in to the praise of men, the moment he starts boasting in himself and what he has accomplished, it's the very moment that God's glory is no longer the focus. Listen to me. You and I have to be on guard for the exact same temptation, because there are few things that can divert our focus faster than the praise of people. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. I don't think most people set out to praise you in an attempt to get you to take your eyes off of Jesus. You just have to be aware of the propensity of your own heart to want to rob God of his glory. I'll give you a practical example as your pastor. And please, I mean, don't stop doing it. I love when you all come and encourage me with how God has used the words that I have preached to encourage you. And I'm just going to tell you the fight in my own heart, and you're doing nothing wrong. You should encourage me. It is good. It is right. and biblical. I'll let you in the fight in my heart is, is to not say, look at how good you are at preaching, Michael. And it is a fight. And I'm going to continue. To fight. Again, you shouldn't stop encouraging me as your brother. But we've got to recognize even something as good as proclaiming God's word, our heart wants to twist that and rob God of his glory. There are good things in your life that God has called you to, and your temptation will be to do the good things, to see how God has worked, but then try to take the credit for yourself. It's part of our pride. It's part of our sinful nature. Because here's the truth we have to grasp. The moment we begin to care more about the praises of men than the glory of God, that's the moment we will try to build our own kingdom rather than His, but we'll try to build our kingdom in His name. And we've just got to be aware of the fact that in our, our day of social media, where quote-unquote influencers are all around us that declare to us, build your kingdom, build your platform, get your recognition, make yourself known. I just want to remind you this morning, that's, that's just not the reason we're here. Because I'm convinced the kingdom that God is building is going to be a better kingdom than anything I can build. But I have to believe that in those moments where I'm tempted to try to rob God of his glory. So the question then becomes, how did Nehemiah actually avoid this temptation? Well, there's two things of significance I want you to see. He says, first, notice what he says in verse 3. He says, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing important work and I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? So pay attention to this. Nehemiah actually uses the work that God has called him to do as a defense. Here's where it's interesting. Nehemiah had already rebuilt the wall at this point. But when he is praised and asked to join his enemy, his response isn't, Well, I got nothing else to do. I finished the job. He didn't say, well, technically the task is finished. No, Nehemiah says, yeah, I might have finished it, but there's still more work to be done. And Nehemiah refuses to rest in what he has done, but instead looks to what else he can do to bring God more glory. I think this is what Paul was getting at. As I mentioned earlier, when he said, I don't consider that I've taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, reaching forward to what is ahead. There is a a temptation, right, to rest and stop fighting for the glory of God and rest in past accomplishments and forget the fact that if there's breath in your lungs, God is not done using you to bring him glory. And often what comes immediately on the heels of one completed assignment is another one. And Nehemiah says, yeah, the wall's rebuilt, but there's more that I can do. I don't have time to boast in myself. I don't have time to meet with you because there's more glory that is due God's great name. And if he's given me breath in my lungs, I'm going to pursue that. So we see with Nehemiah this faith, right, that is focused on the glory of God. But second, I want you to catch this too, how how he kind of fights off the temptation to give in to the praise of men. Notice second that he refuses to leave the community. He refuses to leave the community. I mean, look again at his response. I'm doing important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? See, where they invited him to go in the Ono Valley was about 20 some odd miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. So they're not only asking him to like just come to the gate and talk with them, He said, hey, man, leave, leave Jerusalem and come to us. But what Nehemiah does is fascinating. He not only uses the work as a defense against the praise of men. He uses the community as it is. I'm not leaving this community. I'm not going to abandon these people to come and get your praise, right? I'm going to stick to the people that God has called me to stick to. Can I just tell you that there are a few things as dangerous as rogue ministry? There are a few things of saying, man, God's given me this calling and I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to do it in the context of, of my community. I'm not going to do it in the context of church. I'm not going to let them in. I'm just going to do the thing that God has called me to do. That is a recipe. That is a recipe for giving in to the praise of men. And he says, no, I'm not going to leave the people of God to come and meet you. So what we see with Nehemiah, that his focused faith allowed him to avoid these praises of men. But there's something else that he avoids as well. See, a faith that is focused not only avoids the praise of men, it also avoids the fear of man. Look again at verses 5 through 9. So Sambalot sent me this message a fifth time by his aide who had an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Jeshim agrees that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you're building the wall according to these reports. You are to become their king. And you've even set up prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf there is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king, so come, let's confer together. Then I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. I like that. You're inventing them in your own mind. For they were all trying to intimidate us, saying they will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. But now, my God, strengthen my hands. So four times the text tells us they try to lure him with the praise of, of, of men. They try to lure him in with flattery. And when that doesn't work, Sambalot just goes right back to the direct route again. And he begins to make up lies about Nehemiah and the people of God in order to try to force Nehemiah to come and meet with them so that they can harm him. Now, I don't want to gloss over the seriousness of the accusations they levy against him. I mean, he accuses Nehemiah and the people of God of plotting treason. We talked about this in the first sermon. We have to remember how sensitive King Artaxerxes was to treason. Throughout the entirety of his reign, he had constantly had to put down treasonous uprisings. So for him, it's, 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 this, it's this thorn in his side as a king, right? People are always trying to rise up and take my crown. And so he would not have taken that claim lightly. So, so they accuse Nehemiah and the people of God of plotting treason. But then they accuse Nehemiah of trying to take power from the king by saying that Nehemiah wants to be king. But then they go on and they say that Nehemiah, he's corrupting the faith by setting up false prophets to declare that Nehemiah is king by decree. And then they threaten to tell the king all of this, which if believed would most likely have meant certain death for the people in Jerusalem. If they told the king this, I doubt the king would have investigated. It wasn't King Artaxerxes style. You can look through history and see that Uh, 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 an accusation was enough for him to just destroy people. And so what Nehemiah is presented with is slander and lies in an attempt to basically blackmail Nehemiah to do what they want him to do. But here's the thing I find most interesting about this. When you really look at Nehemiah 6, you begin to notice that they accuse Nehemiah of the very things that they're guilty of. They accuse Nehemiah of treason when in fact they are rebelling against the very order of Artaxerxes to let the Jews rebuild the wall. They accuse Nehemiah of trying to have this power grab when, in fact, as we've talked about over the weeks, their very opposition to Jerusalem is the result of their desire for more power in the region. They accuse Nehemiah of setting up false prophets to say what he wants them to say. And as we'll see in verses 10 through 13, that's the very thing they do to Nehemiah. Here's what I want you to see sometimes as we are focused on being faithful to what God has called us to do, the unjustified, the unjustified, the unjustified criticism of others says more about their problems than it does yours. Yeah. It reveals their heart and what they struggle with. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. You have been criticized for things and people who, who are criticizing you are literally doing the exact thing to you at that very moment. I'm not going to name names or point out things. I'm just saying. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, I want to be clear about something. I am not saying that... Anytime someone brings an area of concern to you, you get to write it off and say, well, that's clearly your problem and not mine. That's not what I'm saying. We need rebuke. We need correction. We need to be exhorted towards righteousness and encouraged towards righteousness. We need that. But what I am saying is there are sometimes you are focused on the work that God has called you to do. You are faithfully pursuing that. and unjustified criticism will come your way. And it says more about that person than it does about you. And the indication that we get from the text is that Nehemiah genuinely considered what they had to say to him. Because look at his response in verse 8. It says, then I replied to them, there is nothing to these rumors. So he had to think about it. He had to listen to what they're saying. He's saying, there's nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. So he considered them and then he responded to them. But notice what Nehemiah did not do. He did not give them a response to every one of their claims. He did not feel the need to justify himself or his work to his enemies. He did not feel the need to remind them of his close relationship with the king. Go ahead and tell the king. He's the one who sent me. He knows me. No, what does Nehemiah do? Verse 9, he does what Nehemiah always does, and he prays. Look again, verse 9, it says, For they were all trying to intimidate us saying they will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. But here it is. But now my God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah's prayer, those seven words, it's an incredible prayer because Nehemiah doesn't ask for God to vindicate him because he knows that God will. Nehemiah doesn't ask God to bring truth to light in that moment? Because he knows that God will. Nehemiah simply asks, God, keep me focused and strengthened to do the task that you have assigned me to do. Said, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with praying for those things. We can pray for the vindication of God. We can pray that, that, that darkness would be brought to light. But but in this moment, Nehemiah displays an incredible confidence in the righteousness of ju- and justice of God, so much so that he focuses his prayer where the uncertainty is. Did you catch that? He focuses his prayer where the uncertainty is. Here's what I mean. Nehemiah knows that if anybody fails, that it's not going to be God. God has never failed to vindicate the righteous. God has never failed to expose the deeds done in darkness. God has never failed to save those who are his. God has never failed. But Nehemiah knows the temptation is not that God will fail. The temptation is that he will fail. And so he prays, God, I know you're going to do what you're going to do. So strengthen my hands. Help me to keep doing the work that you have called me to do. And church, sometimes when the accusation flies, when the slander flies, when the lie flies, the only thing we got is God, just strengthen my hands to keep running this race. And let me believe that you will vindicate, that you will bring darkness to light, that you will not fail. So he prays for God to strengthen him. And in some regard, I do think this calls us to focus on the intensity of the temptation towards the fear of man, because that's what Sambalot is banking on right now when he says this to Nehemiah. He is banking on Nehemiah being overly concerned with the opinions of men. And Sambalot is hoping that Nehemiah will be more afraid of the king of Persia than he is of the king of kings. They were banking on Nehemiah having a spirit that many of us are tempted to have, a spirit that cares too much about what the world thinks of us. Now, again, I want to be clear. On one hand, we should care about what the world thinks about us. We should. I mean, the Bible tells us, so I think about the passage for pastors that we're supposed to model to the congregation. The congregation is supposed to then have that same attitude, right? We're supposed to be well thought of by outsiders, we are. We're supposed to be well-thought-of by outsiders. We want to be known for our good deeds. First Peter talks about that, right? You want to be known for your good deeds, for your righteousness, not for your foolishness. So in some sense, it does matter what the world thinks about us. But on the other hand, when our righteousness is the cause of the world's frustration, in those moments, we have to choose to fear God more than we care about the opinions of others. And I'm just going to tell you, your righteousness, if it is walked out, will bring you into conflict with this world. And there is a real temptation for us to give in to a fear of man. I'd be willing to bet, I'm not going to do it because I'm not putting anybody on the spot, but I'd be willing to bet that we could go around this room and there are areas of unfaithfulness in your life that you know about where you are not doing what God has called you to do, and it's not because you don't know what to do, and it's not because you don't know how to do it, but because you're terrified of what the world might think of you if you do. I'm not leveling that against you. That's me too, fam. There are areas in my life where I know the fear of man wins. One verse, though, that I've tried to cling to as I've wrestled with the fear of man has been Isaiah 2.22. Stop regarding man in whose nostril is breath. Of what value is he? Stop regarding man in whose nostril is breath. Of what value is he? And what Isaiah is not saying is that people don't matter. We know that's not true. They're made in the image of God. Every human being bears worth and dignity. But what Isaiah is saying is that there are some times where you've got to stop giving so much credence to the opinions of others because they're just man. I think Jesus said it something along the lines of don't fear those who can just kill the body, but fear those who can cast the body and the soul into hell. So in this moment, Nehemiah remains faithful by refusing to give in to the fear of man. So Nehemiah 6 shows us on the front end two things to avoid if we're going to have a faith that's focused. But then at the end of the chapter, we learn two things that you have to have if you're going to have a faith that is focused. Here's here's the third thing I want you to see. A faith that is focused fears the Lord. A faith that is focused fears the Lord. You see, it's not simply enough not to have a fear of man. The goal isn't to be fearless. The goal is to fear the right one. And when we talk about a fear of God, I want to be clear, what we're talking about is not necessarily a trembling and a shaking, a terrified fear. It's a reverent awe. It is a recognition of the holiness and the majesty and the weight of God. You see, I love Isaiah six, Isaiah 6, Isaiah's moment in the throne room. You remember that? It says that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. It talks about the seraphim flying around. It talks about that when the Lord speaks, the, door, the thresholds of the door shook. And you remember Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And he falls in the presence of... Of God. I think with Nehemiah, there was a genuine trembling fear. But can I tell you the amazing thing about you in Christ Jesus? That's not the fear we have to have. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, paying the debt that we owe, conquering sin, death, and the grave, we get to call out to God as Father. And so we have a healthy, reverent awe, a fear of the Lord, a recognition of his holiness, of his goodness, of his superiority, but we don't have to come into his presence shaking. We come with boldness because our big brother Jesus is mediating for us. And so Nehemiah, though he does not fear man, he also presents us with a picture of a genuine fear of the Lord. Watch this, that manifests itself in obedience to God. And we see that his fear of the Lord actually overcomes the fear of man. So look at verses 10 through 14 again. He says, I went to the house of uh, Shemaiah. I worked on all these names this week. And it's like when I get up here, like, like I'm talking about I listen to the Hebrew pronunciation of them. And I get up here, I'm trying to read. I'm like, this isn't it. So I'm just, I had to profess this. Just say them confidently and everybody's going to believe that's what it is. So I've said it different every time. All right, here we go. <laughs> I went to the house of this one dude. And he was the child of another guy who was the son of somebody else. So Shemaiah was restricted to his house. And he said, so he says to Nehemiah, let's meet at the house of God instead of the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? How can someone like me enter the temple and live? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, here it is, they're doing the same thing they accused him of, because of the prophecy he spoke against me, Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He was hired so that I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin, and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sambalot for what they have done. And also the prophetess, Noodia, and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. So, so let's walk through this. Nehemiah, after receiving the threat from Sambalot, he goes to the house of Shemaiah. Now, the text does not tell us why he went to see this person. But many commentators speculate, and I actually tend to agree with them. I think there's some validity to it that the reason Nehemiah went to, to him was for spiritual guidance about what was happening around him. Because notice what it says. It says that Shemaiah was the son of Deliah. Now, this is the same Delaiah as mentioned in Ezra 2 and in 2 Kings, which I believe it is. This is a family from the line of Levi. So this is a priestly line of people. Now, now, that's significant, all right? Because Nehemiah was not a prophet. Nehemiah was not a priest. Nehemiah was a governor who loved the Lord. And even Nehemiah recognized that there was spiritual authority over him. And so likely, Nehemiah went to him for spiritual direction. And so what's he told when he goes for spiritual direction? Let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. And upon hearing this for Nehemiah, immediately some red flags go up. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You've heard some things in the name of, of Jesus, and you're like, red flag. Because what he was being instructed to do made no sense to Nehemiah. It makes no sense to Nehemiah on two fronts. First, Nehemiah questions, should a man like me run away? See, he's thinking, right, why are you telling me to go and hide? This isn't the first time they've threatened me. This isn't the first time they've tried to kill me. This isn't the first time they've attacked, but something is different now than it was then. We actually have a city wall rebuilt to protect me. So why would I run and hide right now? Like there's actual protection in place. This doesn't make sense. But then second, Nehemiah says, how can someone like me enter the temple and live? Red flag. You see, because Nehemiah knows the law. Numbers 18, 7. But you and your sons will carry out your priestly responsibilities. That's not Nehemiah. He's not a priest. For everything concerning the altar and for what is inside the curtain, and you will do the work. He says, I'm giving you the work of the priesthood as a gift. Here it is. But an unauthorized person who comes near the sanctuary will be put to death. Now watch this, Nehemiah refuses to do what is convenient and what is comfortable if it means violating the law of God. Pay attention to what he says next, verse 12, he says, I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he spoke against me. Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. How did he know? Well, again, because Nehemiah gives us an incredible example of testing everything with the word of God. Nehemiah knew the word of God, and so he knew what he was being told to do would violate the word of God. He filtered everything through the word of God. Let me just exhort you for just a moment. Filter everything through the word of God. Including the things that I say to you. Like I, Y'all know me, but be straight with you. Like, I love the Bible, and I want to represent it as faithfully and as accurately as I possibly can. Full disclosure, that's the reason I didn't put my points up, because I realized, not intentionally, I think I was manipulating the text to make me feel better this week. And I realized it was not what God was trying to communicate. I care about the Word and what it says. But I'm I'm also honest enough to know that just like you, like, I'm not God. And I... I might say some reckless things from the pulpit. Help me, Lord. I might say some things that do not fully align with the Bible. Again, my heart would never be to intentionally mislead you or misguide you, but I know that I can miss the mark. But where you will be safe is if you don't trust me because it's me but you filter everything that I say, everything that Pastor Michael says, everything that Pastor Jesse says, everything that Pastor Lance says, everything that your husband says, everything that your wife says, everything that your friend says, everything through the word of God. And we gotta be okay with the fact that sometimes people get it wrong and they're not trying to get you. But in this case, they were trying to get it. But what saved Nehemiah was that he knew the word of God. And we got to reckon with the fact that some of us know our Bible so little that somebody could stand up here and preach nonsense to you and you might believe it because you know nothing different. Nehemiah gives us an incredible example of testing everything by the word of God because what they were asking violated the word of God. And Nehemiah refused to do anything contrary to the word of God. Why? Because he had a healthy fear of the Lord. He had a greater fear, a greater reverence, a greater awe for God than he did anything else. And as a result, Nehemiah entrusted himself to God in God's word. And we see it in his response once he figures out what's going on. Again, verse 13 and 14 says, He was hired so that I would be intimidated. Do as he suggested, sin and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. So what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah does what he always does. He prays. Verse 14, my God, remember Tobiah and Sambalot for what they have done. And also the prophetess, Noah, yep, and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. I'm struggling with these names. So we learn here it wasn't just Shemaiah. They had hired a lot of prophets. Now I want to point something else before I move on. And this is significant about this when we consider our cultural moment. We can't miss this. Nehemiah had such a fear and a reverence for the Lord that even the corruption of the religious leaders did not cause him to forsake the people of God. Because what we'll see in the weeks to come is that Nehemiah still respects the priesthood. He still respects the prophets. He still respects the people in the temple even though people in those positions abused their power. Here's why I point this out. I want, you, I want you to hear me carefully and hopefully I say this and you get my heart. We are living in a day and age where the mantra is give me Jesus but forget the church. Yeah. And the reason for that is because people are hurt by the church and specifically hurt by church leaders. And I want you to hear my heart because I know who I'm talking to. I know who you are in your stories. For some reason, God has allowed New Breed to be a safe place for some people to land who genuinely have been hurt by the church and leaders. And I respect that. I know your stories, but the very fact that you are here is a testimony to the fact that you fear the Lord because it'd be easier to sit at home. It'd be easier. But I also want to encourage you to stay on guard because the temptation is ever present to want to write off the church altogether because some people have abused the positions of authority that God has set into place. And and I want you to hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that you stay under abusive leaders. I am not saying that you sweep it over the rug. You walk away. But what I am saying is we do not have the ability to write off the bride of Christ. The bride is ugly at times, it's messy at times, it's sinful at times, but it's God's. And God is redeeming his bride. What I am saying is that if you have been hurt, if you have been wounded by the church or by people in positions of authority, so was Jesus, and he still died to redeem her. And so we do not give up. Like We can seek counsel and care. We can leave if we need to, but we do not write off the church. You've heard me say it so many times. There is no biblical foundation for having a covenant with God without a covenant with his people. The Bible doesn't say which of his people, and you get to choose those by God's grace. But we covenant with one another. Nehemiah paints a beautiful picture of what it looks like to fear God more than men. Nehemiah literally went to spiritual authorities who had been bought out by those who wanted him dead. The very people who should have shepherded his soul were seeking his death. But Nehemiah, rather than abandon spiritual authority, Nehemiah turns those who abuse their authority over to the judgment of God. And as we'll see in the chapters to come, he presses into the people of God even more. All of this because Nehemiah feared the Lord more than man. I'm running out of time. I want to give you one more. Try to move through it quickly. So we've, we've talked about that two things to avoid. A faith that is focused on what God has called you to accomplish is a faith that avoids the praise of man, avoids the fear of man. But it is also a faith that does fear the Lord. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see. A faith that is focused is a faith that trusts the Lord. Look at the beginning few verses there. Beginning... Or the last few verses, I'm sorry, beginning there in verse 15. It says, The wall was completed in 52 days, on the 25th day of the month alone. When all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence, for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. I don't want you to miss the weight of the statement in verse 15. The wall was completed in 52 days. With all the mocking, with all the threats, with all the violence, with all the plotting and the scheming, the wall was completed in 52 days. And on top of that, verse 16, when all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. Nehemiah throughout this entire process from hearing about the state of Jerusalem and Susa from asking the king for permission to go rebuild from traveling to Jerusalem with every hardship along the way Nehemiah models a focused faith that believes and trusts that the enemies of God will not win and now Nehemiah can make the report God was faithful to see it through and there is power in that declaration that God has seen us through See, often, even in our own lives, there's a temptation to move from one season to the next without taking stock of all that God has done. Without taking stock of what God has done, our confidence in him will begin to wa- waver. We say it like this. There is a reason that riddled throughout the Old Testament in particular, the people of God looked back at past seasons before facing future challenges. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that the people of God look back. When the people of God faced the challenge in the wilderness, they look back to God's deliverance in Egypt as confidence that God would do it again. There's a reason that before David faced Goliath, he looked back. He looked back at the time as a shepherd when God gave him the power to beat the wolf, to beat the bear, to beat the lion. And he looks back, says, God has seen me through that. God will see me through again as he faces Goliath. There's a reason the prophets look back at past deliverance. They look back and saw all the times before that God was faithful to deliver Israel from their sin, and they use that as confidence and trust that there would come a better day with a better deliverance. And what I'm trying to tell you is is that if you want a faith that trusts in God for what he has in front of you, it's going to require cultivating some trust by looking back at what he has done. It's going to require taking some stock of some areas in your life where you can honestly say that task was accomplished by God. And maybe you're not sure what to look back on. Well, let me tell you this. If you are here and you are in Christ, I'll give you one. You look back on your salvation because that was accomplished by God. The reason we look back is because God has been faithful. And the gospel declares to us the beautiful truth that no matter what happens in this world, God's enemies will not win. Because your greatest enemy was sin. It was death and it was the grave. And every one of us, because of our sin, by nature deserved the judgment of God. But God loves us so much that he sent Jesus who lived that perfect life that we should live but we can't live to die the death that we deserve to die. And he was crucified and he was buried. But three days later, he got up and he walked out of that grave with with victory, with salvation, with freedom from death, sin in the grave in his hand. He invites all of us to place our faith in him and find life and life everlasting. And I just want to tell you, you didn't do anything. God accomplished all of that. And so we can look back at God's past deliverance for confidence that he will see us through whatever is in front of us. Because here's the thing I want you to see, and then I'm done. One of the beautiful things about this is that as Nehemiah completes the task and looks back at God's faithfulness, immediately he's in the midst of a future trial. Because look at what it says in verses 17. It says, During those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters. So the wall is done at this point. And during those days, the nobles of Judah, of Judah, Sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, since he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan, and married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. These nobles kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me, and they reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters too intimidating. Here's what's fascinating. We learn something about to, uh, Tobiah in this passage that we've not seen yet. Tobiah was a Jew. He was on the inside. He was one of God's people. And what's going on is after the wall has been rebuilt, people start sending Nehemiah letters and they start praising Tobiah, praising his good works. Here's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get Nehemiah to step aside and let Tobiah take over. And they're saying, yo, he's a good, he's one of us. He's the same guy that's been trying to kill Nehemiah. The nobles of Judah are sending letters to Nehemiah saying, yo, you got to step out of the way and let this guy lead. But Nehemiah needed trust for what was in front of him. So he looked back at what God has done because there was more work to be done. We're in chapter six. The book's not done. There's more work to be done. And in that moment, Nehemiah needed a confidence and a trust in the God that the God who has delivered then is the God who will continue to deliver. And if there is still breath in my body, I'm going to complete the assignment that God has given me to do. He was focused on bringing God the most glory, and he didn't care what the nobles had to say. He didn't care what the people of God had to say. He cared about what God had to say. And there's a lesson in there for us. I'm, I'm not trying to belabor, but let me just throw it out there. Some of us right now have people in our lives that we give too much credence to their voice simply because they bear the name Christian. There are some people in your life right now that are not helping you focus on the thing that God has called you to or actually hindering the work God is trying to do in you and through you. But you deal with it because they're a Christian. And I want to free you this morning to know there are some Christians that you don't need to give your ear to. There are some Christians that you are foolish because you continue to give your ear to. Yes, they are our brothers. We love them. We pray for their growth, but not every Christian is going to be used by God to help you accomplish the task that God has set before you. And some of us need wisdom to realize the reason we are not growing, it's not because of outside of it's because we are letting people in that shouldn't be there. Jesus had Judas, right? Like there are people that can be around us that are not for us. And some of us just need some wisdom to realize that, man, the reason we are struggling to stay focused on what God has called us to do, the work that God is doing, the growth that God is producing in us, is because we are surrounding ourselves with people we shouldn't surround ourselves with just because they're a Christian. I'm not going to press too hard. You can have a conversation with me about that later. But let me land this plane here. I know a lot of this was focused on, on our practical outworking of keeping our faith focused, but I, I want to say the same thing that I said last week. This is one of the challenges of preaching, right? Like Jesus isn't mentioned in this text, but Jesus is riddled throughout every word. And just like we said last week, Nehemiah, Nehemiah might have been one of the best of us. Like he's killing it. He's one of the few that so far he ain't dropped the ball yet. Now we know he did. But Nehemiah is still, just like I said last week, a lighter, lesser, lower version of a higher, heavenly, holy leader. See, Nehemiah is rebuilding Jerusalem, but he is painting a picture for us of one who's building a better kingdom. And Jesus models for us, better than Nehemiah, a faith that is focused. Well, how do I know it? Because Jesus avoided the praise of men. Is that not what the temptation of Jesus is all about? Hey, Satan recognized who Jesus was. You deserve to have the nations bow before you. All I'm going to ask is bend the knee and they'll praise you. And Jesus says, no, that's not, that's not it. His, con- his ministry was filled with constant threat. I mean, he fled towns because people wanted to kill him. But Jesus never stopped because he avoided the fear of man. But even Jesus models a fear and a reverence for God the Father. Which is why Jesus can say, Not my will, but yours be done. Yeah. And Jesus trusted the Father. Well, how do I know it? Because one of the last things he says is, Into, my hand, into your hands I commit my spirit. Mm-hmm. See, Jesus models for us a faith that is focused, but I also want you to take stock because the result of Jesus' focused faith is our salvation. Yeah. It's our salvation. Has he paid the debt that we, we could not pay? And so we, as the people of God, we don't want to look like Nehemiah. We want to look like Jesus. And Jesus understood the task that God had placed before him. And he was focused on that. And so here's what I want to leave you with as we go this morning. I believe that I could probably tell you what our collective focus should be as the people of God. But I think that God has also placed some desires in you and some direction in you and called you to do some things. And so I want to I leave you with these two questions to consider this morning. What is it that God has called you to focus your faith on? What does God want you to do for his glory to build the kingdom? What has he equipped you for? What has he gifted you for? And then I want to ask you the question, what are the things that are hindering you from doing that? Because by the Spirit's power, we can overcome those hindrances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the constant testimonies that you give us, Lord. That you, you are a God who will not fail that opposition doesn't stop you, that enemies can't thwart you, that you are, you are undefeated, Lord, and you will remain so. And so I pray that you will give us grace to trust you. I pray that we would look back and see your hand working in our lives, working in this church, and believe that the same God who did it back then is the same God who will do it again. And I pray that we will hold on close to you, believing that you are for us and not against us. In Jesus' name, amen.